0: Um, I want to say to you guys in welcoming you all here, uh, last time I spoke I went overtime a lot. I know that. I promise, Matt I won't do it again. I will keep it under two hours. I'm joking, all right? If you don't know me, I, I like to joke a lot actually. Well, let me give my welcome to all of you. I'm glad you're here this morning. I hope Matt, and whatever he's doing, is able to relax a little bit, enjoy some time for some R&R. Um, I did, before I start my message today, want <clears throat> to just quickly give you an update on Israel. Many of you guys have signed up for it already. Um, we are doing really well on applications. Currently, I have 26 applications in, uh, which is very good for this time. Um, uh, we anticipate many, many more coming in the near future. Uh, Matt had said several of you guys are planning on coming, but had not sent in applications. Let me encourage you to do that right away. Uh, I do have a cap; it's a physical cap put on me by the airlines and by our land operators in Israel. So if you know I hit that cap at that point, I have to shut down applications, and uh, I don't want to do that to anybody here. Uh, you know, if that is you, I want to be careful with you know not excluding anybody. Uh, Also, many of you would have received from me a a map marking assignment. I want to just clarify that. That is not mandatory. Nobody has to do that. Uh, You know, you get this massive thing in the mail thinking, what in the world do I have to do this before I go to Israel? No, you don't. There are people that do want to do it, and so we're providing it for everybody. Um, It's optional. It is by no means required. Um, I would Suggest though that if you don't do it, do bring your maps to Israel because they can come in handy when we're traveling around looking at the, at the country. All right. So I had people go, What do I do with this? Do I have to do this thing? Like, no, 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 you don't have to. It's just if you want to do it, you know, color away with your kids, have fun with it. All right. Well, let me pray for us before I begin my message today. Let's pray. Father, as I start today, I would just ask that you would use the words of my mouth to encourage and challenge our thinking. Uh, Father, we think of Matt and Brandy, we just ask that you would refresh them, bring them back to us safely and uh, recharged after some time off. Uh, Father, certainly for this morning as we gather together to look at your word and consider how it impacts our lives today, we pray that that would happen. And Father, I thank you for this church and what it stands for here in the city of Camarillo. Lord, bless those who are watching online, wherever they are as well, as we study together. In Christ's name, amen. Well, folks, we've been working through the book of Matthew now for well over a year. It seems like, are we ever going to get out of Matthew? And Matt keeps assuring me, he's, oh, no, we're going to do it, we're going to do it. And I'm thinking, yeah, we'll see. You know, you're getting in the Olivet Discourse next week. And we'll see how fast that goes. Um, you know, kind of teasing him about that. But folks, as I look at the book of Matthew, as we've been going through it now for about a year and a half, the message today to me is probably the most, I don't want to use the word significant, but I think it is probably the most critical juncture of the entire book. This is the pivot of Matthew. We have been spending a lot of time building, I believe, to this moment where Jesus is making his final and formal break with the nation. And what we wanna look at this morning is the the break. What does this actually look like? Because what follows this is going to be an extended discourse on the future of the nation of Israel. We call it the Olivet Discourse in chapter 24 and chapter 25. Now, you have a bulletin. I welcome you to take notes uh, if you want. Um, I have a PowerPoint. Obviously, I'm gonna walk you through some pictures. I'm a very visual learner myself. I like to show images to help kind of illustrate what we're talking about here. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to turn with me first to Matthew 23. We're going to look at two passages of Scripture, kind of interrelate those with what we're looking at this morning, Um, but we'll start with Matthew 23. Now, let me see if I can get this to, okay, come on here. I'm stuck. (laughs) See, I told you. Oh, there we go. There we go. All right, so let's kind of get a little backdrop. I like context. Um, When I was in school, my teachers used to always say to me, there are three things that are important when you teach, context, context, and context. So I always stress context with you, all right? And another one of my teachers used to always say, when you teach, tell them what you're going to tell them, then tell them, and then tell them what you told them. You know, make sure that you get down the information. So we had set up a structure, as you can see behind me, of the Gospel of Matthew. We had broke the the book up into two major parts. The first part of the book, chapter 1 to 10, was the pronouncement of the kingdom. And we see the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Both John the Baptist and Jesus, as we'd gone over those chapters, stressing the, the offer of the kingdom to Israel. The Messiah is here. He is the bona fide Messiah. We saw that in his genealogy. We saw that in his birth. We saw that with the Magi. He is the legitimate Messiah king of Israel. He is the son of David. He is the son of Abraham. Everything about this was to argue that he was the legitimate Jewish Messiah. If they had any questions about it, he is the man. Then in chapter 11, things begin shifting a little bit, and we're going to call that the postponement of the kingdom, where suddenly Jesus sort of withdraws this public offer of the kingdom to Israel He takes his message and shifts his teaching style into parables for his disciples so they will understand things about the kingdom, but withholding that from the broader public. You see him pronouncing judgment on the cities that he he has been doing most of his miracles in. There's a little area, about a five-mile square mile area, up in the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee, where three cities particularly are targeted. Capernaum, his base of ministry in the north, a little town called Chorazin and a town called Bethsaida. And in that area, he judges those cities because they rejected what he was doing. You see increasing hostility through the gospel towards a Jewish leader to the point that, as Matt taught us, that, that they were even accusing Jesus of doing what he was doing by the power of Satan. Now, as we have worked him into, into Jerusalem with the Passion Week, he has presented himself as a Messiah. And we come to a point now where we're at this morning, this is where he says, done, enough. This is a critical, critical part of the gospel. Five short verses, but power-packed. Now look at them with me in Matthew 23. Okay, here's another diagram of where we're at, how this has worked through. Working at this point where the red that you see there, this is the pivot point. Now, as Matt has taken us through the woes in, in chapter 23, verses 13 to 33, I'm not going to go back over that. I'm not, going to cover, I'm not going to steal another man's thunder, so to speak. Or as Paul would write, I don't build on another man's foundation. Uh, I'll leave that for what Matt said. But just recapping briefly, look up with me at verse 34. Therefore, Jesus says, Behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all righteous blood on shed on this earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. I say to my students, that's A to Z, right there. You know, all of Old Testament history, it's coming down on you. Truly, I say to you, all of these things will come upon this generation. Now, again, I don't want to emphasize what Matt had said, but the fact that these woes are given, guys, we need to understand that is very, very strong language. You know, I think in our sanctified imaginations, we imagine Jesus saying, to, you know, just kind of saying, you know, woe unto you, you know, it's like, done with you. No, no, this is scathing. This is strong language. You know, I, I tell people, like, woe unto you! At this point, Jesus is being very, very strong with them. And then he turns this this scathing rebuke of the nation to a gentle lament. Look what he says here. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Now here's the key, folks. And you were unwilling. Let that sink in for a minute. I offered everything to you. I've given you everything. I've given you every chance. But you don't want it. You're unwilling. So, verse 38. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, what I'd like you to do, folks, with me, Okay, for those of you, by the way, that like a little outline, very simple, I mean, these five little verses we're going to look at this morning are not overly detailed, I think it's fairly straightforward, there's not a lot of detail that we need to flesh out with this, but if you look at it, folks, this would be the outline I would have. You have, for example, the desire for Jerusalem, how he wanted to bring Jerusalem in, that was Christ's desire, but they were unwilling. And then the attention turns, and we'll look at sort of a shift happens from chapter 23 to 24, where the disciples, as they're leaving the city of Jerusalem, are making comments about the Herodian architecture there. Look at these stones. Now, to us here in Camarillo, that doesn't sound overly dramatic if you've actually seen these stones. And Jesus makes a comment in verse 2 of 24. He says, You see these stones? You see these buildings? not one will be left upon another which is not torn down and all i could think of is the disciples are thinking in their minds say what okay more on that to come folks hang on so let's review the passion week let's place ourselves in the week okay and again i'll do this much faster than i did a few weeks ago when i was teaching you Um, but reviewing the passion week obviously jesus comes into jerusalem for the triumphal entry now In our sanctified imaginations, as I said previously, folks, we tend to think of a few hundred people gathering on the Mount of Olives to witness Jesus coming in and putting down their coats, putting down palm fronds. That is not at all what happened. In fact, the text is very clear. The Gospel writers tell us the entire city came out to meet him. Now, at this time of year, the pilgrims that would come into Jerusalem for a pilgrimage feast like this could number in the hundreds of thousands. We're talking 300,000 as an estimate. Now, to put that in perspective, imagine the L.A. Memorial Coliseum three times, that's what we're looking at, full to capacity three times. We're not dealing with just a few people kind of hanging out, looking at Jesus. This whole city came out to see him, all right? Now, he will enter the temple, present himself as the Messiah. It's late in the afternoon. He simply walks in. Uh, Mark's gospel tells us he looks around, kind of takes inventory of what's happening, and then exits immediately and goes over to Bethany. Now, we come into Tuesday, Monday and Tuesday, which is the week that we've been working through with Matt for the last few weeks. Jesus will depart Beth- Bethany, and on the way to Bethany, this is about a mile, a little over a mile walk, and I've done it from Bethany over to Jerusalem, over the Mount of Olives, uh, he has the famous incident of the fig tree where he curses this fig tree. Now, Jesus does this not because he's ticked off, because there's no figs on the tree, He does this because, frankly, folks, it's a picture of Israel. He expects fruit. There is no fruit. It's an object lesson for his disciples. He will possess the temple, and this is where we've been with Matt for the last few weeks here. He comes into the temple. He drives out the money changers. Now, you have to understand, as I said previously, folks, this is, the, this is the equivalent of shutting down Black Friday. This is where the Sadducees make their money. This is the time of year where they make bank on this. As people are buying lambs because of the, the, the uh, just corrupted nature of their business, they were buying and selling lambs there at overprices. They were charging uh, extensive expense to change money into local currency to use to pay the temple tax. This was, it was referred to as Annas' Bazaar. Okay, It was was a horrible marketing, and Jesus shuts this commerce down. And that's going to hit them where it counts. It hits the Sadducees in their wallet. In fact, the gospel writers tell us that the disciples together with Jesus had basically shut off all this practice and would not allow anybody even to walk across the temple property with so much as a water jug. Totally shuts this thing down and possesses the temple as Messiah. This is My house. Now that's important. you got hundreds of thousands of pilgrims there. They're loving this. They're seeing this man shut down this, what they knew was to be basically black market economy. They're shutting it, Jesus is shutting it down. They're thrilled with this. He will teach these massive Passover crowds who are loving what he's saying for the most part. He will confront and confound the religious leadership. Now, you guys, we went through this, you know, we talk about the you know, the Pharisees and the Herodians come up with a famous coin, you know, do you pay the tax or not? It's kind of like saying to me, Dr. Bealy, have you stopped beating your wife? Now, how do I answer that? If I answer yes, that's a problem. If I say no, that's a problem. So they're trying to play, and this is by the way, in the in the Hebrew mind. These kind of di- intellectual debate dialogues are how you prove your intellectual worth. Now, we don't do that in our culture, but in their culture, this is huge. If you can outdo your opponent in a verbal sparring match, that's considered to be pretty cool. And Jesus, three times, will shut them down. The crowds are probably in the background just cheering this, going, yeah, who? shut them off. Jesus shows his intellectual mastery over his opponents here that's what we've been working through now eventually he will turn this is late tuesday afternoon okay tuesday afternoon of the passion week jesus is done and that's the text we're in now he pronounces the woes and then our text for this morning Now, it's important as a context, I think, if we kind of walk through this here. He departs Jerusalem for Bethany. It's late Tuesday afternoon. He's heading back to Bethany where he's staying. On the way, this is when the disciples are looking at the temple building. And my thinking on this, folks, is these disciples have still not understood fully what's going to happen. Jesus had warned them previously, I'm going to Jerusalem, I will be handed over, I will be crucified, but I'll raise in three days. They weren't getting that. For them, for the last few days, they're seeing the kingdom as imminent. It's about to happen. We are on a roll in their mind. You know, the masses have welcomed them in. We possess the temple. Everything that's happened to this point has proven that he's the Messiah. So when they're looking at those temple buildings, they're thinking, hey, in a few days, this is us, baby. We're it. And they're not getting what's really going to happen. Now, Jesus will make the comment, which will lead us to the Olivet Discourse. These buildings that you see are all going to be torn down. Now, Matthew in review, let me take us back, folks, because I think we need to see this context. I have said to all of you previously that I believe the way you understand the book of Matthew is you must understand also the book of Isaiah repeatedly Jesus will use, and Matthew will use, Isaiah as a context for the ministry of Jesus. Going all the way back to the birth narratives, quoting the virgin birth, Isaiah 7, we can the theme of a forerunner, Isaiah 40, all the way through Matthew's gospel, Isaiah has become a very prominent reference point for this book. And what we have seen over the last few weeks, and, and Pastor Matt has re- referred to this, is the imagery of isaiah 5 in this context now here's what i'd like you guys to do with me all right let's take your take your bulletin put it here in matthew 23 i want you to go back with me to isaiah 5 and let's look at this isaiah chapter 5. now i realize for most of us we don't do our quiet times in the book of isaiah you should it's good But Isaiah 5, it's very interesting. You see, if you notice this, you'll see a parallel to what we've seen so far in chapter 23. And actually going all the way back to chapter 21 to 23. In Isaiah 5, verse 1, Isaiah talks about a vineyard. Now keep in mind, Jesus twice, folks, twice has used vineyard illustrations with the people. Now, I think the danger that we have in front of us is we hear that, we hear this idea of a vineyard, we immediately think, well, it's just agriculture, and they're all familiar with agriculture, so vineyard, fine. No, 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 no. He's being very specific. He's aiming right at the nation. And by the way, when you look at Matthew 21 where he does this, the Pharisees know he's talking about them. He's looking right at them. Now, look at Isaiah 5 with me. Verse 1, let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. Now, that's significant. Vineyard on a fertile hill, folks, this is in the hill country of Jerusalem, Judea. All of your farming is on a hill. More to come on that. Okay, you, It's a different kind of farming. We think of the plains of maybe Kansas, not in Jerusalem. You got to do it on a hillside. He plants this vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around. He removed its stones and planted with it a choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it. In other words, he sets up this installation for the production of grapes and wine. Now, He expected it, now look at the language here, he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. Now look at the verses that follow closely in Isaiah, and just think Matthew in the back of your mind. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, I expected it to produce good grapes. It did produce only worthless ones. So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedges. It will be consumed. I will break down its wall. It will become a trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. Now, for those of you that will go with me to Israel, I can show you this. But in the hill country of Judea, you farm by what are called terraces. They're basically a stone wall. There's a little bit of ground, very thin. I'll show you pictures of this in a moment. Then another wall, ground, wall, ground. It's like a step going all the way up the hillside. If you tear down those hedges, you tear down those walls, what that does is allow erosion to just wash that topsoil right down into the bottom of the ravine. It destroys it. And what God is saying here, that this vineyard will be destroyed Now, the question is, well, what is this vineyard? Look at verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. For he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. In other words, this vineyard being described in Isaiah 5 is the nation of Israel. I expect good, I get worthless. Now when Jesus is talking about a a landowner who plants a vineyard, go back to Matthew 21, we won't look at it, you can imagine these religious leaders with Isaiah five ringing in their mind. Because what follows this, interestingly enough, if you look at this with me, are a series of six woes. We just read woes, didn't we, in Matthew 23. Now again, I'll show this quickly, I am going to get you out on time. I told myself last time, I will do this. (laughs) But folks, there is a sense in which Jesus is doing the exact same thing in Matthew. In fact, I won't go through all of these woes, but he gives these six woes, and some of them to me are as timeless today. as Greg prayed, you know, and talked about. we We are in a time now, folks, where a lot of these I think are very true of us even today. Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there is no room. Drop your eyes down to verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning and they pursue strong drink, who stay up late in the evening, that wine may inflame them. Their banquets are accompanied by lyre and harp, by music and tambourine and flute and by wine. They're partiers love to party. Verse fourteen. Therefore, Sheol, the abode of the dead, has enlarged its throat and opens its mouth without measure. And Jerusalem's splendor—I think that's significant. Jerusalem's splendor, her multitude, her din of revelry, and a jubilant within her descended into it and destroyed Jerusalem. Look at with me at verse twenty. This one just haunts me today, folks. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Is that a commentary on our culture or what? That is where we're at today. Now, my point is not to teach you Isaiah 5, but folks, the context that God had a vineyard that he had planted, he had done everything to nurture Israel as a people, just like he would take care of a vineyard. And yet that vineyard did not produce what it was supposed to produce. God will destroy that vineyard and pronounce his woes on it. Now we take that over into Matthew chapter 23, we see the exact same thing. Jesus has said, there was a landowner who had a vineyard, they knew they were talking about him. He pronounces woes just like Isaiah 5. And that leads us to our text. Now, in the PowerPoint that follows, guys, I illustrate this for you. For example, the vineyard. You can see in this chart up above me the parallels. And by the way, if you haven't figured this out about me yet, I like charts. Visual learner. You know, I, I make charts all the time. My students go crazy with this because, they you know, another chart. You know, here we go. But kind of illustrating it here. Now, you talk about a vineyard. I'll give you some pictures of this. Like I said, I like pictures. Obviously, he's expecting a crop like this. If you go out to a vineyard and there's no grapes on it, why keep the vineyard? Just using up resources. It says he made a, wa- a watchtower. This is an example of a watchtower. Okay, this watchtower, you know, you go up there, you kind of keep an eye on what's going on. The lower level was kind of your wine cellar, if you get my point here. They would put the wine in there to allow it to cool and to ferment. Uh, you carves a wine vat. That's a wine vat. There was a pressing floor above this where the grapes would be tromped by feet. And then that juice would drain into this, that area, be collected into jars and set aside for use later. This is an example of that terrace farming that I was talking about. You have this step structure down the hill, and God says in Isaiah 5, since you're, you're not producing, I'm just going to tear this whole thing apart, let it go to, go to seed. Now, the woes, we've talked about these, comparison between Matthew and Isaiah. Um Again, very similar language here, chair Moses. Now Matt's already showing you this picture. Uh, we get over to court. this is actually in Corzine. uh We get there. I'm going to get a picture of Matt as a Pharisee in it for us. All right? The scribes and Pharisees love to sit in the seat of Moses. And of course, this idea of a house being left desolate. Now, if you have your Bibles again, let me have you go back or, or uh, you know, if you're using a digital Bible, go scroll over to back to Matthew 23, and let's look at this. In verse 37, Jesus laments over the city, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is really a picture of the whole nation. Uh, Jerusalem was seen as sort of the, the, the center of Jewish thought. It's where the, everything was built around Jerusalem. Ezekiel 5.5 5 says that Jerusalem is the center of the nations, now we might think Washington, D.C. is the center of the nations. That is not true. Jerusalem is. Okay, I'd hate to sort of break the news, but America is not God's chosen nation. Israel is. Israel is my firstborn. Okay? Looking at Exodus. So that being said, Jerusalem here, he's speaking not just to the city itself, but the city is representative of the entire Jewish people. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I you kill the prophets. You stone those who are sent to you, and he's describing what's been set up in verse 34. How often I wanted to gather your children the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you weren't willing. Folks, I think in this you see the heart of the Messiah, the tenderness of him. You know, many of you read the book Gentle and Lowly, and there's a lot of good stuff in that book. All right, He desired to have a relationship with them, but they were stiff on him. We don't want you. In fact it's interesting in one of these illustrations it says we will not have this man rule over us we don't want anything to do with him i desired it i wanted it you didn't want it so what's the outcome of this this rejection look at verse 38 with me behold your house is being left to you desolate Now folks, these verses that you see behind me, you can look them up, read them in your own. There was an attitude that we have the temple of God here. As the people of God, that temple will always be here. And God had warned them, there will be times where if you rebel against me, I will leave this house desolate. I will allow it to be destroyed, and that's happened twice in Jewish history. Don't assume this building will always be here. I'm leaving that house desolate. I am the Messiah, this is my building. I have the choice of making it desolate. And it makes an interesting promise, verse 39, I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now folks, two days earlier, Sunday morning on the triumphal entry, they were, they were proclaiming this, welcoming the Messiah. Same language. same Psalm 118. Two days later, he's saying, "I'm done." And another generation will cry that out, wanting me to come. Now I will save that for what Matt will discuss in the Olivet discourse and the entire. So the kingdom is now lo- no longer at hand. The kingdom has been postponed. This kingdom will be for a future generation that will receive it, but you will not receive it. That is why this is the pivot. It's done. Until that generation says, they want me to come, I'm not coming, it's over. Now I have friends and other theological traditions that will say, well, this is abandonment of the nation, he turns attention toward the church and it's now a spiritual kingdom. No, that's not, I don't buy that for a second. He says, until you can say, there is a future hope, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant still stand, but it's on hold. And, folks, that's where we find ourselves today as a church. We are in that holding pattern for a future generation. Now, as I walk you through the PowerPoint here, looking at Jerusalem here from the Mount of Olives, uh, this is a modern view of it today. I'm about ready to move into chapter 24, which is the Olivet Discourse, the Mount of Olives, is where Jesus gives this. Um, if you look at the Mount of Olives today, I mean, I could draw out some things for those of you that might not be going to Israel. Of course, the Dome of the Rock here, this Muslim structure today that sort of signature for Jerusalem. To give you a perspective, the temple in Jesus' day was probably twice to two and a half times the size of that modern building. It was a huge facility. This whole area up here was part of the Temple Mount complex. Okay, The ancient temple sat right where that is. And there are other things we could point out from up here. I mean, this is the Kidron Valley. Jesus will cross this, uh, leaving the upper room. Um, I'll save a geography for when we teach the class. How's that? Now, it says that when he gives the Olivet Discourse, he will give it from opposite the temple. Okay, now this view, which I took this shot back in November, this is basically almost directly opposite of where the ancient temple was. The Dome of the Rock sits where the ancient temple was located. And again, to scale, the temple in Jesus' day would be about twice that size, okay, that that modern building. Now, understanding something about Herod's temple, let's look at our Bibles for a second. Verse 24, Jesus came out of the temple and was going away. It's late Tuesday afternoon. He is making his way back to Bethany. This has been his pattern for several days now. The disciples are assuming, no big deal, we're just leaving. We're going back. We'll be back here tomorrow morning. So, you know, this is what we've been doing, right? I think in their mind, they're thinking it's just a continuation of this. But as they're leaving, notice what the disciples are doing. They were going away. His disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. Now, I find that rather curious, because Jesus is like, I know what these buildings are. You know, I mean, you know, it's not like, you know, why are they pointing it out to him? And I think the answer to that is these guys in the back of their mind are thinking, we're going to be possessing this in this kingdom. This is going to be us. They're still thinking kingdom. They're not realizing in a few days from now he's going to be crucified. Jesus had warned them that's what's going to happen, but they're not buying that. And they go, like, man, look at the you know, royal stall over here. Man, look at the court of the Gentiles here, how big this platform area is. And look at the temple, and they're pointing out all this stuff. And then Jesus makes a comment that I think would have really kind of struck them as funny, in a sense. I mean, not funny, but rather, what? Verse 2. He said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Now to understand the significance of that statement, he's already said, I'm leaving this house desolate. It's going. It's going to seed. Which, by the way, it did. Let's understand some history of Herod's temple. Now this is referred to as the second temple. The first one was Solomon's temple. That temple in 586 B.C. was destroyed by the Babylonians. They came in there, they raised the city of Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple, uh, leveled it to the ground, and it basically went to seed for 70 years until after the exile. Now, if you know your Old Testament history, under Zerubbabel, we have records of this in the book of Ezra. If you don't know where Ezra is, it's in the Crispy section of your Bible. Nobody ever reads Ezra. But the, the Jews are allowed to return following a decree by Cyrus the Great. So when they return to Jerusalem, they begin rebuilding the temple. This is called the second temple. And it was a humble facility. In fact, it's interesting that Ezra describes that there were those weeping that had never seen the old temple, weeping because there was now a new temple, and some of the older people were weeping because they had seen the older temple, but now this one doesn't even pale in comparison. And they didn't know who was weeping over what, but everybody was weeping. You know, for something. But that humble facility, they, they kind of went started it went and fits and stops, and you know, when it stopped, this was the prophet Haggai. Now now I'm really getting into parts of the Bible, most people don't know. But Haggai kind of chides the people, one of these minor prophets, saying, "Hey, get working on the temple. You work on your own houses. What about this one? Now, later, during the intertestamental period between Matthew and Malachi is 400 years of history, folks. And in that 400 year of history, the temple would undergo additional modifications under the first the Maccabees uh, during the Maccabean revolt, later the, uh, the Hasmoneans, which was the group that followed the Maccabees, these priest kings that existed during the intertestamental history, uh, leading up to finally Herod. Now, what Herod will do, folks, with this temple, is that he wants to curry the favor of the Jewish people. So he is going to expand this significantly. He will double its size. He he begins this building project that will last. If you look at this here, folks, that building project would take 46 years before it was completed. Now, some of you feel like that's my remodeling plan. But doubling the sizes, and to do that, he would have to do a complete architectural restructuring of this. And in 70 AD, as Jesus will predict, and I'll leave this for Matt to talk about, that actually happens. 70 AD, the temple's destroyed as part of the first Jewish revolt. Now, to understand Herod's temple, I have a diagram from Leon Rittmeier, one of the experts on this, um, that shows what that temple, we're looking from the southwest to the northeast. Uh, Basically, this is the Mount of Olives up here, Uh, temple complex right here. I put the red here. This is the modern western wall that many of you guys have seen pictures of. I tell people when you're looking at the western wall, you're looking at the side, that's not the temple. Because people will say, well, I thought Jesus said it all be down. Yeah, everything in the temple is down. This is, you're looking at just part of the retaining wall. Think of the, you're looking at the side of a sandbox. You have to build the sandbox and then put the temple on top of the sandbox. So this area right here is where the modern western wall is between Barclays Gate and Wilson's Arch. Now, looking at an aerial photo, this is a a model, and you've already seen this model many times. It's in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. Uh, You can see the temple complex. This is what Jesus has been possessing for two days. Uh, You have the temple proper, which is this building right here. You have a wall that goes around it, you see it right there. That wall was basically the dividing wall. This area is for Gentiles. Gentile crosses that wall, they were dead. And they have in the Israel Museum what are called the Thanatos Inscriptions saying, if you cross this line as a foreigner, as a Gentile, you're responsible for your own death. All right. Jesus would have possessed all of this, probably teaching in the royal stoa area. This was a colonnaded uh, shaded area up here on the platform. Um, Nobody was allowed to do any commerce in here whatsoever. Over on this side, this building structure here was the Roman Antonio Fortress, where basically the Romans kind of kept an eye on what was going on, making sure there's no insurrections. This would factor later into the book of Acts. Now, I don't usually give websites, but if you guys want to study Herodian masonry, this is the website. I'll leave it there. All right? Now, why were the disciples so impressed with these stones? Okay? To us, a stone, we think of bricks. You know, bricks don't really excite me. You know, why would they be so animated about these stones? These, these Herodian stones, guys, are pretty unique. In fact, I have here what is called the master course, the master stone. There is one stone in the Western Wall, and they think that they built the wall off of this. This is sort of the anchoring stones that they would build everything around, that they estimate to weigh somewhere between 250 to 300 tons. In fact, they've kind of downsized. They used to think it was over 500 tons, but they've since kind of modified it down. One stone is 44 feet long. 11 feet high and they estimate by ground penetrating radar that's about six to eight feet deep. Now you probably can't see it in the photo here, but I had one of my students walk all the way down to the end of this and point where the other end is. Well, from I'm standing on one end to take the picture, they're at the other end, that's one stone, one. Now I know that that weight probably doesn't mean much to anybody, but let me put it into a comparison. You take the Boeing 787 Dreamliner, which is what we'll be flying to Israel on. When that plane is fully loaded and fueled to takeoff out of Newark Airport, it will weigh approximately 242 tons. That stone weighs more than that airplane. How did they move it into position with half an inch tolerance? We can't figure it out. For as dumb as the ancients, we think the ancients were, because they didn't have iPhones, right? We can't figure out how they... Uh, some of the stuff I've heard, folks, is amazing. You know, people say, oh, those aliens. Maybe levitation. Man, you guys are drawing straws here. So you understand the disciples are pretty interested in all this. Of course, the Western Wall Plaza, you've probably seen pictures of this. The lower concourses down here are these Herodian stones. Okay, the upper parts are all added on, but this, at this level here, and by the way, this goes underground 30 feet. That wall goes down below the plaza level. The Herodian stones, I got this picture of a soldier here where his hands are touching. This stone dates back to the time of Jesus. Now, Herod would use this little border emboss around here that was typical of his stones. All of them have it. You see it here again. Okay, we see it over here on this one, on these lower concourses where they would actually cut this border on it. And these stones were massive. There's all kinds of debates. There's a picture of where the Western Wall is located on the model. People always, when I get to the model, say, well, where was the Western Wall? I kind of point it out there uh, on the Western Wall. Uh, how did they quarry? I've got enough engineers in here to say, how did they do this? Well, this is speculation. They think they cut them by chiseling out, dropping pieces of wood in between the blocks, swelling it, allowing the swelling of the wood to pop the block off, and then quarry that way. That's how the quarrying technique happened. How they moved it, there's all kinds of speculation. Did they use wheels? Did they roll them on logs? Did UFOs pick them up and carry them? I, you know, you hear it all. I mean, I've heard all, all kinds of strange explanations how they move these massive blocks. And again, some pictures of them moving it where they'd move it up a ramp, place it, and then tear the dirt ramp down when they were done with it. Uh, These are some replications of lifting, using pulley systems, uh, possible cranes doing this. In fact, a friend of mine one time had a guy that actually ran these really high-powered cranes, these big cranes you see, and he said, I don't know how they did it. He said, the best cranes that we have, I had maybe three or four of them we might be able to do this. But I I don't know how they did it without those. Or they possibly rolled them. There's a replication where they illustrate moving these what are called ashlers or stones by wheel. Uh, this is another illustration of these massive stones. Okay, this is the southwest corner of the temple. They would use a unique feature, this is called a, a striker header structure where they kind of offset. You notice they kind of go like this up to give stability to these massive corners. Um, I have a picture here of two of my students that's one stone. If you look at the stone itself, this one's estimated to weigh about 70 to 80 tons. Here's one end of it. Okay, You can see the border on this side going all the way down to where they're standing and that traditional border cut. You see these borders. That's all. These are all from the time of Herod. Now, this is not the temple, but this is the only standing Herodian structure in Israel today. It's the cave of Machpelah, um, the uh, uh, tomb of the patriarchs as we know it today. Uh, which is still, it's a Herodian building, and if you look at it closely, you'll see these border-embossed stones going all the way up. They think the temple walls look like this. It would have been similar style, Um, so there's speculation by archaeologists that it looks very, very similar. Now, Jesus said everything would come down. I've shown you this picture previously, and I made the comment, my wife excavated right there. That's where she was. But this is all debris that came off. When the Romans tore this down, this street here is Herodian level. This is actually goes underground. You see it ends right here, but it goes underground all the way up to the top of where the temple would have been. So that road, Jesus would have walked this road. You can see the Herodian stones here on the bottom concourses. All this stuff came from up on top into piles. When I first started going to Israel, that was just a dirt mound out there. They excavated all this in the last 20 years. Now, I'm going look at the clock. I promise I'll get you out of here. Matt's going to talk about now what in the Olivet Discourse. Jesus has pronounced his judgment on the nation. It's over for them. The kingdom is now postponed. The disciples still thinking, hey, this is all happening, man. We're on a roll. Make a comment about the temple buildings. Jesus says, you see that? Not one will be left upon another, which is not torn down. And they're looking at that going, Whoa. 46 years building this massive complex, and you're telling me it's gonna be destroyed? And Jesus is going, Yeah. More to come on that. But as you look at this, guys, what do we walk out of here with? Let's some quick lessons for us. Number one, Jesus offered the kingdom. They rejected his lordship. They did not, we will not have this man rule over us. Now, folks, I don't think there's probably a person in this room or watching by television who wouldn't say, Well, of course Christ is Lord. But is he really is he really i have to ask myself daily am i allowing christ to be lord of my life or am i in control of my life when i was in college there were some guys i used to hang around with in the ministry i was involved with and one of our lines was who's in control of your life because if you're in control of your life greg that ain't the way it's supposed to go is he the lord of my life secondly the nation wanted a Messiah to take care of their physical, political needs. But no one wanted somebody who could confront their spiritual inadequacies. I asked the question of all of us, folks, what kind of Jesus do we want? Do we want to, uh, one of my friends said it well, he said, we want a domesticated Jesus. We want a Jesus that's kind of nice and gentle and kind to us. But we don't want a Jesus that might put demands on us, who might ask us to do stuff we don't want to do. The nation had it all figured out. They knew what they wanted. The last thing I want to say, and then we'll wrap this up, folks, is the nation was comfortable with their current religious systems. And guys, this haunts me today. We get comfortable with the way we do church, our Christian radio, Christian bookstores, Christian books. We get very comfortable with all that, and I worry that we're not drifting into the same kind of thing that Jesus confronted in the New Testament a kind of self-made religiosity where I feel good about myself because I'm doing all the right things and I'm doing all the things I'm supposed to do and I kind of go along with this Christian culture thing and Christ is saying, I have none of it. There's a sense in which, brothers and sisters, we've got to really confront who is Jesus Christ in our own lives first. This nation, yeah, we'll have you as Messiah with footnotes. We're okay with a domesticated Jesus, but do we want a Jesus that actually speaks into our lives and says, You will do this, when I'm feeling very uncomfortable with that? Folks, I can look at this and think, Well, it would have been different if I was there, but I ask myself, I'm not there. What am I doing here? Is Christ Lord of my life? Or do I want to live a comfortable little Christianity where I do what I want to do and Jesus sort of fills in the edges and makes everything nice and I have my little tea cozy and I read my little study Bible and I do my little thing and I have my little time with Jesus and then go on and do whatever I want to do. What kind of Jesus do I serve? And with that, let's pray. Father, let this serve as a warning to us that they, didn't, they wanted Jesus on their terms, and Jesus was having none of it. The demands he placed on them confronted the religiosity that they had embraced. And Father, that serves as a sober warning to me. Lord, may we be a people that bow the knee, as was prayed earlier today, and realize that he is the Lord, he is the Messiah, he is the King thanks again for this congregation. Bless them richly, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.